and would invite you now in the closing moments of this meeting to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. As we're going back in history here a little bit to a time that precedes Elijah. This is before Elijah's day. In fact, uh, really chapter 12 in 1 Kings comes to us at a time when the nation of Israel had really reached its peak for its glory and splendor as a nation. We, we read of Rehoboam. He was the son of Solomon. It was during Solomon's rule, you may recall, that the nation really became the sole superpower in the Middle East. Things were wonderful throughout much of Solomon's reign. The temple was built during Solomon's reign. Uh, the kingdom was established during Solomon's reign. There would be no foreign intervention during Solomon's reign. It was the policy of the wisest king in the Bible to have a very strong army on hand in terms of chariots and infantrymen, etc., to be prepared for any kind of foreign invasion. And it was during Solomon's reign that the temple was dedicated and the Shekinah glory filled the temple. It was as if God himself stepped down from heaven right into the temple to direct the worship service himself. And it was such a display of his glory that we're told that the priests couldn't even enter because the glory of God had filled the house. So really the first 10 chapters in 1 Kings uh, describe for us the climax of Old Testament history, arguably. Sadly, they didn't last long. They didn't last even beyond uh, the realm of Solomon's son. And so we read now um, a terrible account, really, of what took place once Solomon had left the scene of time and the throne was passed on to his son, Rehoboam. So let's look at this in 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, 
then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter? And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, where the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite unto Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 16. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I had an interesting interview a little while ago. My grandson Caleb, who was home for a little while for the summer, still taking classes while he was here, still taking them now for that matter, even while he does his internship. And among the courses he... um, is taking is one on the topic of leadership. And it was his task to interview three people to gain from them their philosophy of leadership. I was one of the men that he interviewed. So what's your philosophy of of leadership? He asked me. I'm pretty sure I referred to the passage we just read. I don't know if I read it to him in the course of that interview. But this portion of scripture we've just read now is really very telling on the issue of leadership and what should be required in good leadership and what can happen if... um, Good leadership is not manifested. I dare say that in this instance with Rehoboam, good leadership was not manifested. And what was the advice that the older generation had given to Rehoboam? Basically, it was this. 
If you occupy your role as king and adopt a servant's attitude toward this people, they'll be loyal to you for life and they'll serve you faithfully. Servant leadership, in other words. And that's what I suggested to Caleb would be my philosophy, not mine uniquely. I was glad to learn from Caleb that the other two people he interviewed answered him in similar fashion. So I'm glad that I'm not out on a limb when it comes to this philosophy. But it's demonstrated right here in this section of God's Word, isn't it? And and this has application on, on so many different levels. When we think of leaders, you can think of it in terms of church leadership, pastors, elders, and the people committed to their care. You can think of it in terms of parental leadership, parents in the home, and the way that they treat their children. You can think of this and draw an application from it to an employee-employer relationship, you know, and how an employer or a company owner uh, ought to treat people that are under his authority. If it's not done right as it wasn't done in the case with Rehoboam, then what was the tragic result? It was a split in the kingdom. The kingdom split. Ten tribes in the north went their own way. The tribe of Judah, David's tribe, was left behind. And I believe the tribe of Benjamin, which at that time in history was a tiny tribe, nearly extinct, uh, but they stayed with um, Judah as well. Uh, Division. Division because of oppression. Division because of a lack of a servant leader attitude. Uh, What was the great advice that Rehoboam's contemporaries gave to him? You need to press him even firmer under thumb than what your father did. You need to assert your authority, exercise it to an increased degree if you want to rule over this people. And you know, that's a a common mindset today. And it is that kind of mindset that splits churches, that splits families, that drives people out of places of employment where they work, The abuse of authority. You would think that this would be something very basic and very obvious, and yet there are increasing books being published today and an increasing number of articles being printed today and being posted on the Internet that have to do with the topic of leadership being abused, authority being abused. I remember reading one such article. I don't remember much about the article. Uh, I found it on the Gospel Coalition website, uh, and it had to do with this very thing. Um, Abuses in the home by fathers and by husbands. Okay, well, that's a topic I can understand. That's certainly a, a legitimate topic to deal with. What surprised me about the article is that it appeared under the category 
of the most read articles on the Gospel Coalition website for that week. That article that had to deal with abused authority was read more often than anything else. Which led me then to think, uh, okay, this is a bigger problem perhaps than I know of. And indeed, since that time, I have heard statistics that only verify it all the more. Abused leadership. Tim Yarborough, the man who sent me the the books, which, by the way, are on the table out there that you can pick up, uh, Myanmar Gold. He, He also sent me a couple of books that he recommended on this topic of abused leadership. Tim himself is uh, running a ministry, a shelter ministry, uh, for children that have been abused, for wives that have been abused, etc., etc. He told me, and I, I couldn't find it in the text, maybe I deleted the text, or maybe it's in an email, but he gave me the percentage. And I forget what it was, but it was an alarmingly high number of those in homeschooling families in which authority is severely abused. Like I say, I I forget the percentage, but it was alarmingly high. Which means then that this is something that's very real. This is something that we are confronted with in our day and age. And you know, it's things like that when I become exposed to them that actually lead me to prayer and to thank God that our church isn't any larger than it is. <laughs> uh, the larger the church is, I suppose, the more likely uh, is um, the scenario in which you find yourself having to deal with that very thing because it is a very pronounced and sad and tragic situation that exists in Christian circles, in Reformed circles, in Evangelical and Fundamentalist circles, this idea of authority being abused, a lack of servant attitude on the part of those that are in leadership. Oh, how we need to be seeking God to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil from this sort of thing that has grown uh, to this extent. So I I say a servant's attitude. That's how Rehoboam was advised. Evidently, that was the policy, at least initially. It may not have been the policy by the end of Solomon's reign. It seems like he did not prosper nearly as well at the end of his days as he did earlier on in his ministry. But in the earlier days of his ministry, he evidently exemplified that um, manifestation of wisdom in which he had a servant's attitude toward those to whom he ministered. You know, that, uh, that doesn't originate ultimately with Solomon. That comes to us really from Christ himself. Look with me, if you would, in Mark's Gospel. Now, Mark chapter 9. And 
And let me read some verses beginning with verse 35. I believe I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Do I have this right? I may have the wrong reference, but well, we'll read. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part, for whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter into, halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell um, that never shall be quenched. Verse 35 in particular I'm interested in. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Rather interesting to note, I should have read the verses perhaps that precede this verse, where Christ asks them the question in verse 33, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Oh, they were all very interested, weren't they, in self-promotion, so to speak. All bragging on the feats that they had performed, the miracles that they had done. And yet Christ makes it very plain, doesn't he, that the one who would truly be great would be the one who would serve. And Christ does say on another occasion that that's why he came into the world. Ye call me Lord and Master, and you say correctly, for I am that, he says. This might be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And so there is a recognition. Authority is real. There is no denying that. We're not um, demeaning authority or sacrificing authority or putting authority uh, away in order to be servants. There is, to be sure, um, a realm of authority within the kingdom of God. But the way that that authority is exercised becomes the all-important matter that has to be contemplated and exercised correctly. And the right attitude in leadership is to take up the task of a servant. 
the way Christ did. Let's look at another passage, this one in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And Christ is giving us a very vivid illustration by his own actions as to what servant leadership looks like. Let's read, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, and I love these next words, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part in me, or with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he saith unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. There's that verse I referenced just a moment ago. He is Master and Lord. Uh, there is not a laying aside of his authority. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet... Ye also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. You know, there are some churches that actually, based on this passage, adopt the practice of foot washing as an ordinance in their church. I remember when this was pointed out to me, years ago when I was in a, a Bible class uh, down at Bob Jones. And uh, the teacher of the course was kind of challenging us. said, uh, why, why shouldn't this be an ordinance? I mean, look what Christ says. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Shouldn't this be an ordinance then? Shouldn't we include this with the Lord's table and with baptism, a third ordinance of foot washing? And the key to not adopting it as a practice, I believe, is found by Jesus' words in verse 7. Jesus answered and said unto him, 
What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. In other words, the significance of what Christ was doing at that moment might not have been understood and appreciated from a spiritual perspective, but would be known and appreciated at a future time. And it has to do with service. Not necessarily washing feet, but the thing that was illustrated by the washing of feet, which was service, humble service in which we wait on one another and serve one another, in which Christ himself uh, took up the role that would have been performed by a slave in ancient times. And here's the example then being set for us as Christians, especially those in leadership roles, but those in, in, in any role in which you may find yourself. Not just church leadership, though certainly it applies to them, but in house leadership, in business leadership, in civil government leadership. How much more inspiring could our civil government be if they could somehow come across as those that are servants to the people that they rule over uh, instead of lords over them? Oh, they might go far in gaining respect if they could take up more of a servant's attitude. Now, one more passage that I'll call your attention to. Ephesians chapter 5. Familiar portion of God's Word that has to do with parental duties. Ephesians chapter 5. Where we have instructions in chapter 5 and going even into chapter 6, instructions that pertain to our roles as husbands, wives, children. Verse 22, Ephesians 5, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We come into chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. Jump down to verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So here is a passage that pertains to leadership. Leadership in the home. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And what you are looking at here, and I usually point this out if I have occasion to officiate at a wedding, that in both instances here, the role of the wife and the role of the husband, there is Christ-likeness to be found in both roles. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. How demeaning. Don't give me that, the world says today. That, that is cruelty, that is oppression, that is not right, and who do you think you are, you male chauvinist? And it leads some to say that Paul was a male chauvinist for even writing those words. 
Stop and think about for a moment, you know who exemplifies that better than anyone? Christ himself. He submitted to his Father. His purpose in coming into this world was to submit to his Father. He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There is no issue of equality between God the Son and God the Father, both of the same essence, both totally God. And yet Christ, especially in his role as mediator between God and men, voluntarily takes on the role of one who would submit to his heavenly Father. And you can trace that theme the next time you read through the Gospel of John. Uh, Look for the number of instances in which Christ professes to be doing exactly that. I've spoken unto you the words that the Father gave to me. I have performed before you the deeds that the Father gave to me to perform for you. And especially when you follow Christ to Calvary's cross, Here do we find him rendering submission to his father. We get a picture of the agony of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What an incredible display of submission. What Christ-likeness, then, is to be found in submission. And yet in that particular act of submission, Christ submitting to the very wrath that his Father would pour upon him, we find there the standard of submission that is given to husbands. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for it. I have a book on my shelf somewhere with the title on it, Reforming Marriage. Doug Wilson, the author. Caution flags, man, when you hear the word Doug Wilson, the name Doug Wilson, caution flags, you cannot uh, take everything that that man tells you without discernment, without careful discernment, because he is not always on the money in things that he writes. But in this particular book, He makes an interesting observation when it comes to the headship of men in the home. One of the things I like about that book, too, is it shows um, a Puritan, a pilgrim, a husband and a wife, and they're both sound asleep at the kitchen table. And I showed that cover to my wife, and I said, Look, dear, we finally got our picture on the cover of a book. So, (laughs) but be that as it may, in his chapter on headship, the headship of the husband, he makes a very good point when he says, uh, if ever a husband has to assert his authority over his wife, chances are very likely he's not exercising his authority very well. If it is required of him that he has to assert himself that way, Uh, There's a good chance that, as a general rule, he may be very overbearing, uh, very dominant, one who is a poor head of the home, to say the least. And then he holds out the challenge. Here is what a husband 
should do if he really wants to bring his wife into right and proper submission. He needs to love her into submission. I love that phrase. And I love that advice. And I think that is very much in keeping with the principles that we see exemplified in Scripture. Love your wife into submission. Love your children into submission. That doesn't mean you do away with discipline, but boy, make sure that your children understand the context in which discipline is being administered when God chastises us, as he certainly does, as you hope that he does if your profession of faith is to be validated. How does he do it? He may do it through harsh providences, but the thing to keep ever in mind is he does it from the principle of love toward those he's, he's redeemed. And so must that be the guiding principle in the discipline of our children, the guiding principle in wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church. So let's keep that ever in mind during these days, which are evidently beyond, you know, maybe what I can even comprehend and express, authorities being abused today, being abused all over the place, being abused in horrendous ways. Paul Tripp, some of you are familiar with Paul Tripp, he has written a book that was designed for a very specific purpose, It was designed to address uh, those that profess to be Christian, those, I I suppose you could say, in leadership roles who come across as very orthodox. They know how to talk the talk. They know how to engage uh, other Christians in theological discussions. And evidently, there's quite a widespread number that fits that bill, but when it comes to actually doing what they say, the gap is great. And he's written a book that addresses that specific issue. Maybe we'll have occasion to conduct some studies based on that book. It it, it is addressed. He goes into some definite case studies talking about seminary professors of all people, so well grounded in the Word of God, so well able to uh, demonstrate scholarly knowledge in the ancient languages and in theology and biblical exegesis, etc., etc. And yet you see them in their homes, and they're atrocious. They're terrible. They're abusing their children, abusing their wives. And so you have this great gap between what you might call orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is what we believe. Orthopraxy is what we practice. And sometimes the gap between the two is quite profound. Probably more so than perhaps what many of us realize. What is the solution to that gap? Well, it might help if we adopt the proper attitude toward leadership, which is, after our Savior's model, to be servant leaders. 
servant leaders. I close with one more verse, this one in 1 Corinthians 11. This is with regard to Paul himself, where he says in verse 1, Be ye followers of me. Now, if we stop the verse right there, we might think, boy, here's a prime example of somebody who's arrogant. Follow me. I'm the man. You know, I'm the great one. And in many respects, that would be true concerning the Apostle Paul. But you'll notice the qualifier that he puts on this exhortation for others to follow him. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. There is no such thing, you know, as a leader who's not a follower. With one exception, which would be, I suppose, Christ himself. But in every other instance, a leader is a follower. Paul followed Christ. And maybe that's what those in leadership roles need to have impressed upon their hearts too, as direct and as simple as that is. Men, follow Christ. Make sure you're following him. And if you are following him, you can't help but be impressed with his servant leadership actions that he demonstrated in his earthly ministry. Be like him. Call on others to follow you as you follow him. And then exemplify that by following him with your prayer life and your devotional life, etc., But may God help us then to be free of the kind of abuses that are prevalent today in Christian circles and even in many Reformed circles. May God help us to be servant leaders in the various roles that we practice. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, We sadly have to admit a propensity in each of our lives to abuse even the legitimate things that are given to us by God. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to manifest Christ-likeness. May we learn what is to be learned from the example Christ set in washing the feet of his disciples that we are to be servants even in our leadership roles. So, Lord, help us to be godly and help us to be Christ-like in the various roles that Thou hast ordained and structured. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.